Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Albert Einstein stated that time is an illusion. But try saying that to someone who asks if you have the right time. Now, the key element in that particular inquiry is the need to know the right time. There was a period during the great time debate in my region of Kilkenny when you needed to observe caution asking a stranger for the right time. Depending on which side of the argument the individual supported, you could see yourself misinformed by a full hour at least. In 1956, a man cycling from Kilkenny City through the town of Callan and on to Mullinahone claimed he heard the noon Angelus bells ring out three separate times during his journey. Back then, the church bell in Callan rang out a sync with the time set at Greenwich in London by one hour. And to make calculations even more complicated, a similar bell in Mullinahone was a further 25 minutes and 21 seconds adrift from its neighbour. There are those who claim the Callan bell is cracked, and perhaps they're right. The bell was indeed damaged during the riots that occurred there as part of a church schism that raged in the town for over a decade in the late 1800s. The events leading to the Holy Row revolved around an attempt by the parish priest to offer free education to local girls. His ambition was smothered by his boss, the Bishop of Ossory, and that decision sparked a vicious and often bloody contention within the community. The events of the conflict form the background plot for local writer Thomas Kilroy's award-winning novel, The Big Chapel. The book, first published exactly 50 years ago, highlighted how events in a small Midland town can become the elements of a Victorian clerical scandal debated in Rome, the Houses of Parliament and within the pages of global newspapers. Perhaps it's that rebellious spirit that made the introduction of what was locally known as the New Time a hard edict to follow. For a period in the 1950s, Callan's church bells refused to follow the rules of daylight saving time. Even though a clock adjustment to allow for greater productivity was introduced during British rule as far back as 1916, a stubbornly entrenched sector of our mainly agricultural community decided to turn their broad backs against the new time and not advance or retard their clocks to the syncopated dance of Greenwich meantime. Six miles up the road from Callan, in the village of Mullinahone, they not only had no truck with daylight saving time, they were still sticking with the old Dublin meantime as calculated in the late 19th century at Dunsink outside Dublin, 25 minutes and 21 seconds behind Greenwich meantime. That computation, when added to the Callan reckoning, heard their bell ring out one hour and 25 minutes out of time with the chimes emanating from belfries across the rest of the country. Support for the old time in opposition to daylight saving time came mainly from farmers and churchgoers. Some merchants supported the campaign, but local government and industry felt compelled to adjust their timepieces and hours of working to daylight saving time. Like the schism from 70 years earlier, the town sundered into rival factions and the battles recommenced. 
public meetings often ended in bloodshed. My grandmother, a woman who punctuated her days to the sound of the bell from the big chapel, was staunchly on the side of the old-timers. The peals rang to her across meadow and bog and were sacred music when they resonated into the shell of her ear. The sun in the sky and the church tintinabulation was all the clock she needed. Hens and cows were unconcerned with daylight saving time. They produced eggs and milk to the rhythm of the earth and why should she observe her days any differently? But events were heating up in the town and eventually a local referendum was conducted to resolve the impasse. The ballots were counted, the results announced and the old-timers were shocked to discover they had lost out. The dance of life demanded that they be in step with the rhythm of Greenwich. A few, like my grandmother, remained out of sync, but the waltz of time finally forced her into reluctant compliance. Einstein might be right, and time is an illusion, but try telling that to the bell ringer in the big chapel, or to my grandmother, when she finally stood on a kitchen chair and reached for the hands of the clock on the wall. at a yellowed, slightly tattered copy of the Ulster TV Times magazine. It dates from 1981. Astounding, it survived three flat chairs, a brief stay in a bedsit and two house moves, one to the other side of the country. On the front is a rather beautiful young man with a cricket sweater draped around his shoulders. He's holding a teddy bear. Ah, you might say, Sebastian. It couldn't have been 40 years ago, could it? Yes, it could. The dramatisation of Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited was first aired in October 1981. It took two and a half years to make and cost Granada Television £4 million, nearly £19 million in today's money. A cast of old pros, Claire Bloom, Olivier and Gilgood, newcomers Jeremy Irons, Diana Quick and Anthony Andrews and a superb supporting cast gave the grey and gloomy 80s a lift. Like those who forgot the troubles of the Great Depression via the glamour of the movies, we had Brideshead to look forward to, at least for three sumptuous months. It wasn't just the characters that drew us in. There was Venice, the cars, the interior settings. Oxford colleges in their creamstone glory and rising above them all, Castle Howard, standing in a Sebastian's family home. There was London too, where the bright young things headed out to party the night away or perhaps fall foul of the law after a fracas caused by boy Mulcaster at Ma Mayfield's old hundredth club. I was interested to learn that war based the character of Ma Mayfield on a man Mayrick, who originally came from Dublin. 
The costumes from Brideshead Revisited and the film Chariots of Fire gave the fashion industry inspiration for the 1982 season. America was particularly won over. Just Google Ralph Lauren photo shoots for the time. We weren't above Brideshead mania on this little island. Somewhere there's a pouty photo of me in my teens and the teddy bear my grandfather gave me for my first birthday. I must have been doing a lot of overtime then, but I could afford two drop-waist dresses from designer Sharon Hoey during that 1920s madness. The summer dress was a creation of pastel-coloured vertical stripes with a white sailor collar. My winter woolen dress was black and white check. I had a netted cloche hat and a wonderful black 20s-style coat that I got in Lily Marlene's at the Powers Court Centre. I lost weight and celebrated by bobbing my hair and wearing fire engine red lipstick. I'm not ashamed to say that I still have the coat and my childhood teddy bear. And what of the book? It still sits on my shelves after all these years. A favourite passage is the apology from one of his friends after Sebastian has vomited into Charles's ground floor rooms. The wines were too various he said. It was neither the quality nor the quantity that was at fault. It was the mixture. Grasp that and you have the root of the matter. To understand all is to forgive all. I quoted this to a hungover young friend of mine in college one morning. Then I paraphrased Cousin Jasper's advice to Charles on his first term in Oxford. You'll find you spend half your second year shaking off the undesirable friends you make in your first. Later, my pal texted to say he had bought the book and was loving it. One of my favourite words in Irish is uignus. The dictionary will tell you it means loneliness. Oh, but it means so much more than that. The sound of the word alone tosses the heart about, pulling emotions this way and that. Music that has a newness to it is the very best kind. We take such sounds for granted when we hear the Illin Pipes or Martin Hayes playing Port Nabuki. Strangely, considering that it is the theme to such a particularly English period drama, the title music for Brideshead Revisited is, to my mind, underscored with the weakness. When I hear it, memory's taut spring is plucked. And I'm brought back to my young years, full of dreams and disasters. To that group of fine actors on the cusp of their careers and to Waugh's Brideshead Revisited itself, a novel that captured golden between the war's years, even as they tarnished from the inside out. A book that will outlast all fads or fashions.
I was living in Luxembourg when I ran my first marathon. I didn't set out to run a marathon. I was merely taking stock. There was the middle-aged spread and much evidence that I was spending too much time in the company of my newfound continental friends, Simon, Bitburger and Bufferding, not to mention my growing affection for croissant au beurre for breakfast. My only ambition was to change, to shake myself out of the lazy comfort zone that I had established. I needed to get fit again. I developed a jogging circuit that took me from Bragance in the west of Luxembourgville, through Hollerick and down into the luscious Vallée de Petrousse and along the banks of the Alzette before edging across the battlements near Pfaffenthal. Then I would descend into the old city, the Grund, before climbing steeply back up the cobblestones past the Café des Artistes towards Place Guillaume. It was a picturesque circuit cutting through the heart and history of old Europe. It took me six weeks before I could jog the full seven kilometres without stopping to walk. But then I became fanatical. By Christmas I had shed three stone, bought a whole new wardrobe and imagined I could just discern the early stages of a six-pack. When I really started to run, and was fit enough to begin to pay attention to my surroundings, I began to notice something curious. I was not alone. There were others, all of a similar age. We would offer each other knowing glances as we crisscrossed our proprietary circuits, connected by a common choice to run through this time in our lives. Marathons became the currency of conversation, diet and mileage a fixation. I learned quickly that chafing is the enemy of the distance runner when I burned my chest against the polyester top during a 20-kilometre race in Brussels. I was alive, recapturing something old, something deep down, a boyish need to do something extraordinary for myself. Halloween weekend 2004 found me in Germany on the starting line of the Frankfurt City Marathon, with wife and daughter anxiously waving me off from the barriers. The pageantry of the cheering crowds, street corner drummers and samba dancers pushed the pace along. I was running well within myself and hadn't yet encountered the infamous wall. I was nearly home. Then, with a couple of kilometres to go, my right knee betrayed me. From nowhere it burned with pain, screaming at me to stop, stop the pain. After all, I was no athlete, no contender for medals or ribbons or records, no latter day herald with news of victory. I had nothing to win or lose, just stop the pain. But that older, deeper, unfulfilled something, my dream of the extraordinary, pushed me towards the line to earn my place amongst the legion of finishers, a proud band of also-rans. We celebrated that evening in the beer emporiums of Frankfurt, revelling in my minor triumph, rerunning the highs and lows. What I was not prepared for in the coming days was an almost crushing feeling of anticlimax a paradoxical sense of loss in the achieving of my goal. I suspect 
that it is this sense of loss and the need to fill the void that pushes others to undertake ever more daring adventures, to climb even higher mountains. I ran the Dublin City Marathon the following two years and learned to savour my modest triumphs. For me, in the running, there was a kind of corporal atonement for years of inertia, body and mind reconciled. In some ways I feel I was got by the running bug too late, a first marathon at 39. Who knows what I might have done had I been got in time. I was in a shop in Donegal in early August when I had my first glimpse of Halloween ornaments for this year. They made me smile. And I thought how, for me, the way Halloween has been celebrated has had many stages, from my childhood years to now. As a child in Ohio, I remember getting the first glimpse of the holiday when we would be out shopping in supermarkets with our parents. The Halloween costumes would appear on the store shelves in rows of cardboard boxes, so the plastic masks stared out like strange faces. The Munsters, Adam's Family, Batman and Robin, Sleeping Beauty and Casper the Friendly Ghost. Some years we bought the costumes in the boxes. Some years Mum made costumes for us. But always there was that build-up of excitement. Pumpkins were carved into lanterns, and the insides baked into pumpkin pies. Candy was stocked up for trick-or-treaters, and our classrooms were Halloween decorated. On Halloween night, the sidewalks were swarmed with costumed children and their parents, and the older kids in groups going from house to house. The year I was ten, I was allowed to go trick-or-treating with friends along the whole length of the street, which meant... I was able to cross the railway tracks, a big deal at the time. My sister was promised that she could do the same the following year, but we had moved to New Jersey by then. And in the way of siblings, she still remembers watching me, dressed as a witch, as I went off up across the tracks, and she has never quite forgiven me. A friend of mine remembers that their family ate all their candy within a week. But we still had a stock of candy in our house coming up to Christmas. I think for our Irish parents, the idea of us scoffing big bags of sweets in one go was too alien for them. In 1970, we moved home to Letterkenny. We found that trick-or-treating wasn't a custom, but we did play Halloween family games like bobbing for apples. And moving on, in my teens, there was the barn bracks. I ate whole packets of the loaves just to be able to slice into the bread and accidentally 
discover the wee ring wrapped in white paper that might forecast my future marriage. And then, in the next stage, when our sons were young, we brought back the Halloween games. We couldn't get pumpkins, so I carved turnips. I'd bring out the plastic yellow bath that once was their baby bath and fill it with water and apples. The boys and their friends, on their knees, with their hands behind their backs, trying to be the one who got a bite out of the apple. Or the apple tied to a string and hung from the door frame. And with the apples came the prize of coins for their next trip to the shop. As they grew, the next stage became the Halloween bonfire, which took weeks of preparation. It was a time when our son's friendships were put aside, as friends from different parts of the town broke into separate groups to go hunting for tires and pallets. Garages were good for tires. The bus depot was wonderful. Wooden pallets were found at the back of dance halls. The tires were rolled up our lane and stored in my aunt's garage. Guard duty began then, to protect their treasured hall from being taken from other gangs until Halloween evening, when all was rolled or carried in tandem to the nearest field. Sitting around the bonfire was all the better for them after working so hard to create the flames. Meanwhile, Halloween was growing into a wondrous festival in Derry, which brought us to the next stage of celebrating. That first trip that we made in the late 90s, we were walking down the steep Shipkey Street when our youngest son suddenly stopped, spellbound, as two adults came walking towards him, dressed in full Power Ranger gear. He was sure they were real. That night, to stand on the banks of the foil in a time before the peace bridge was built and to watch the crowds on each side of the river as the fireworks exploded was more than we could have hoped for. And then, years later, the next Halloween stage dawned on me as I stood at a school gate in Balbuffet and watched a line of costumed children come walking through the yard. And there, in the middle of them all, an astronaut, my grandson, so very chuffed with himself. The light's been changing. Already the sun hangs so much lower in the sky. In the garden, I'm carefully deadheading roses, marigolds, geraniums and poppies, hoping to coax a last splash of colour from roots and branches. Voices float up to the garden on the breeze from the shore. Children's shouts of delight in the blue air of freedom after another day at school. Slightly out of sync, Angela's bells ring, one from the nearby church, the other on the radio. Marker of time, call to prayer, 
The bells of the Angelus are woven into the soundscape of my life. I have always been fascinated by sound, by the distances and directions in which it can travel. I like the Oxford Dictionary's definition, sound, vibrations which travel through the air and are sensed by the ear. At my home in Calcutta when I was a child, the sound of the 6am Angelus bells from St. Thomas's Church floated by the walls of Loretto School, past Callum Pong Home's ice cream shop and the little dark aperture where the Chinese shoemaker sat making bespoke leather footwear. The last tremble of each carillon seemed to settle in our big open veranda where we played and looked out over old buildings. As the noon bells rang, other calls to prayer were answered. On the low cement roof of a big water tank across the way, Muslims knelt in prayer in the peaceful yard of the building they worked in. Their coloured mats faced Mecca. Back in Ireland to begin secondary school, I heard the baritone bells of Sligo Cathedral ring out across the rooftops that separated Summer Hill and Gallows Hill settling over deep ridges in my uncle's potato field at Rusheen, the farm where my mother was born. On foggy autumn harvesting days, the muffled sound of the bells still filtered through the blanket. The days of my uncle's life were punctuated by the dawn bells at milking time, the midday reminder to put on the pot of potatoes, and the tea-time bells that accompanied the straining of warm buckets of frothy raw milk. In later times, as we raised a family, I remember how the stillness of cloudless October evenings on the Curlera Peninsula would catch the sound of the cathedral bells travelling across the townlands of Merville, Moharaboy and Woodfield, moving over the megaliths at Carrowmore and skimming Redgate, to lay their last reverberation below the single hawthorn tree at Seafield, where our shorthorn cattle grazed. In that kind of stillness, you could also hear the evening train beating out the final stages of the line from Dublin. And on Coney Island in Sligo Bay, the Angelus bells from Ross's Point became part of my sonic library. Clanking masts in the harbour briefly swallowed the sound of the bells before the swaying yachts below them released it to the breeze to skim the surface of Shunamila and impel it towards the island's shore. Landing at the dark stone pier, it dispersed south and west towards the blue iron pump where icy water splashed on flagstones to the wire field where mushrooms flourished to the yellow woodbine clambering along Katie's Lane and across the stubbly length of the barley field, from open kitchen doors and all the northern shores of the island, an answering blessing would echo. These days, as my own autumn beckons, there's something deeply comforting about the noon and tea-time bells that ring out from the radio. The bells encourage a pause that links us with something ancient and eternal.
The trees are in their autumn beauty and the woodland paths are dry. Or they were earlier in the week when I walked Killikey Woods to the Hellfire Club. It is a popular walk at Halloween. The atmospheric ruin on the summit of Montpelier Hill was built in the 18th century as a hunting lodge for William Connolly, the Speaker of the Irish House of Parliament. Legend has it that the lodge became a drinking club for wealthy young men whose gambling and licentious behaviour attracted the devil himself into their company. South Dublin County Council planned to develop a visitor centre at the Hell Fire Club. The proposed development on the eastern slopes of Montpellier Hill will command views across Dublin and the Wicklow Mountains. As I walked the woods, I thought of the poet William Wordsworth. I suspect that if Wordsworth were alive and living in the greater Rathfarnham area, he would be writing letters to the national newspapers stating his opposition to the plans of the council. Wordsworth was a great letter writer. In 1841, he opposed the building of the Kendall and Windermere rail line. He believed that members of the working class from Carlisle or Manchester would lack the capacity to appreciate the beauty and the character of seclusion and retirement that the Lake District offered to discerning visitors. He feared an influx of Sunday day trippers. In one letter, Wordsworth stated that a vivid perception of romantic scenery is neither inherent in mankind nor a necessary consequence of a comprehensive education. For the poet, the appreciation of natural beauty was a matter of sensitivity and discrimination. Communion with nature was a spiritual experience and the Lake District was a sacred place. Famously, Wordsworth was a great walker. Indeed, he and his friend Samuel Taylor Coleridge helped popularise walking tours. And while Wordsworth feared that tourism would ruin the Lake District, he himself undertook walking holidays in France, Switzerland, Germany, Belgium and Scotland, as well as visiting Rome and Paris. He also did a six-week tour of Ireland in 1829, sailing off Glengariff and climbing Carran Tuhul. Wordsworth was particularly impressed by Kerry and the Giant's Causeway. The kind of tourists Wordsworth approved of were a select group, people like himself, for whom a ramble in the mountains on Sunday was a form of spiritual exercise, which put them in contact with the sublime and with a sense of something greater than themselves. These ramblers were stirred by natural beauty and by views of the horizon, that resonant meeting of earth and sky. My parents were not that kind of tourist. From the perspective of Mr William Wordsworth, they were the wrong kind of tourist. Although I grew up in Crumlin, a few miles from the Hellfire Club, we never went there on our Sunday drives. My dad was a working man. For the last decade of his working life, he cleaned the industrial ovens in Boland's Bakery, a dirty, unrewarding job. On Sundays, he loved to dress up in a suit and tie and wear his best polished shoes. 
He didn't dress to traipse the mountains. In fact, I doubt the idea would ever have occurred to him. Each Sunday, after dinner, we went for a spin. Dunleary, Bray, Glendalough. We drove to places that were accessible by car and where you could stroll when you arrived. To the best of my knowledge, there was nothing spiritual about these outings for my parents. My parents worshipped at Sunday Mass. If and when South Dublin County Council's plans proceed and a road is built and a tea room and coffee shop developed at the Hellfire Club, I will drive there on Sunday afternoons in November when the veil between the world of the living and the world of the dead is pulled apart. And in that place of ghosts, I will position myself at a table that commands a view of the car park. And I will watch for a black Morris Minor, OYI976. And inwardly I will cheer when it arrives. And my dad will get out and brush the cigarette ash from his jacket. And he'll brush each shoe on the calf of his trousers to give them a quick buff. And my mam will look splendid in her coat and matching dress, with her square leather handbag and her sensible shoes. And these two ghosts will stroll around the Hellfire Club on the Tarmacadam path. And if the weather permits, they'll stop and look over Dublin Bay and admire the view out to Hoth and beyond northwards to Lamb Bay. They will appreciate the pretty view. And if it is not cold, Dad will buy ice cream from the Mr Whippy van parked up on site, or they'll go and have a cup of tea in the cafe. And I hope that when they settle and look around, there will be a glimmer of recognition from my ghostly parents for the ageing man sitting in the corner, smiling over at them. And in my heart, I will feel the great joy of seeing those two again, the wrong sort of tourists, but the best of good people. Now a recap of what you heard this morning on Sunday's Miscellany. Up first it was Do You Have the Right Time by Joe Carney. Revisiting Brideshead Revisited was by Karen J. MacDonald. Tom Ryan brought us first marathon. Then we had Halloween in Stages by Denise Blake. Angela's Bells and Autumn was by Maura Gilligan. Also we heard there the Hellfire Club, William Wordsworth and the Wrong Sort of Tourist by Kevin McDermott. Music this morning included The Clock by Paul Simon. Also in there was, of course, the theme to Brideshead Revisited by Geoffrey Borgon. Van Morrison brought us Come Running and Lena Ullman gave us The Halloween Waltz. Last but not least, Bells Across the Meadow by Albert Cadelby was played by the New London Orchestra, which was conducted by Ronald Corp. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer of the programme is Sarah Binchy. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.